Welcome to Duk Neiting Don Quixote, Volume One, Chapter One. 大家好，读你听嘅时间。今日我哋开始读 Don Quixote， 作者 Miguel de Cervantes。上一回就讲咗呢个作者嘅字句啦，铺排咗呢个人物佢嘅与别不同啦，作者嘅真诚啦，诸如此类啦。咁我哋今日咧就进入正文啦 ，Chapter One。Which treats of the character and pursuits of the famous gentleman Don Quixote of La Mancha, in a village of La Mancha, the name of which I have no desire to call to mind. There lived not long since one of those gentlemen that keep a lance in the lance rack, an old buckler, a lean hack, and a greyhound for coursing, an order of rather more beef than mutton, a salad on most nights, scraps on Saturdays, lentils on Fridays. And a pigeon or so extra on Sundays made away with three quarters of his income. The rest of it went in a doublet of fine cloth and velvet breeches and shoes to match for holidays. While on weekdays he made a brave figure in his best homespun. He had in his house a housekeeper past forty, a niece under twenty, and a lad for the field and marketplace, who used to saddle the hag as well as handle the billhook. The age of this gentleman of ours was bordering on fifty. He was of a hardy habit, spare, gaunt-featured, a very early riser, and a great sportsman. They will have it his surname was Kisada or Kisada, although from reasonable conjectures it seems plain that he was called Kisana. This, however, is of but little importance to our tale. It will be enough not to stray a hair's breadth from the truth in the telling of it. You must know then that the above-named gentleman, whenever he was at leisure, gave himself up to reading books of chivalry with such ardor and avidity that he almost entirely neglected the pursuit of his field sports and even the management of his property. And to such a pitch did his eagerness and infatuation go that he sold many an acre of tillage land to buy books of chivalry to read, and brought home as many of them as he could get. But of all, there were none he liked so well as those of the famous Feliciano de Silva's composition, for their lucidity of style and complicated conceits were as pearls in his sight. Particularly when in his reading he came upon courtships and cartels, where he often found passages like the reason of the unreason with which my reason is afflicted, so weakens my reason that with reason I murmur at your beauty, or again the high heavens that of your divinity divinely fortify you with the stars, render you deserving of the desert of your greatness deserves. Over conceits of this sort, the poor gentleman lost his wits. And used to lie awake striving to understand them and worm the meaning out of them. What Aristotle himself could not have made out or extracted had he come to life again for that special purpose. He was not at all easy about the wounds which Don Bellianis gave and took, because it seemed to him that, great as were the surgeons who had cured him, he must have had his face and body covered all over with seams and scars. He commanded, however, the author's way of ending his book with the promise of that interminable adventure, and many a time was he tempted to take up his pen and finish it properly as is there proposed, which no doubt he would have done, and made a successful piece of work of it too, 
had not greater and more absorbing thoughts prevented him. Many an argument did he have with the curate of his village, as to which had been the better knight, Palmerin of England or Amadis of Gaul. Master Nicholas, the village barber, however, used to say that neither of them came up to the knight of Phoebus, and that if there was any that could compare with him, it was Don Gallo, the brother of Amadis of Gaul, because he had a spirit that was equal to every occasion. And was no Finnican knight, nor lachrymose like his brother. While in the matter of valor, he was not a whit behind him. In short, he became so absorbed in his books that he spent his nights from sunset to sunrise, and his days from dawn to dark, poring over them. And what with little sleep and much reading, his brains got so dry that he lost his wits. His fancy grew full of what he used to read about in his books: enchantments, quarrels, battles. Challenges, wounds, ruins, loves, agonies, and all sorts of impossible nonsense, and it so possessed his mind that the whole fabric of invention and fancy he read of was true, that to him no history in the world had more reality in it. He used to say the Cid Ruy Diaz was a very good knight, but that he was not to be compared with the knight of burning sword. Who, with one backstroke, cut in half two fierce and monstrous giants? He thought more of Bernardo del Capio because at Ronches Vales he slew Roland in spite of enchantments, availing himself of the artifice of Hercules when he strangled Artius, the son of Terra, in his arms. He approved highly of the giant Morgante because, although of the giant breed, which is always arrogant and ill-conditioned. He alone was affable and well-bred, but above all, he admired Reynaldo's of Montalban, especially when he saw him sallying forth from his castle and robbing everyone he met. And when beyond the seas he stole that image of Mahomet, which, as his history says, was entirely of gold, to have a bout of kicking at that traitor of the Ganalan, he would have given his housekeeper and his niece into the bargain. In short, his wits being quite gone. He hit upon the strangest notion that ever madman in this world hit upon, and that was that he fancied it was right and requisite, as well for the support of his own honor as for the service of his country, and that he should make a knight errant of himself, roaming the world over in full armor and on horseback in quest of adventures, and putting in practice himself all that he had read of as being the usual practices of knights errant. Writing every kind of wrong and exposing himself to peril and danger, from which, in the issue, he was to reap eternal renown and fame. Already, the poor man saw himself crowned by the might of his arm, Emperor of Trebizond, at least. And so, led away by the intense enjoyment he found in these pleasant fancies, he set himself forthwith to put his scheme into execution. The first thing he did was to clean up some armor that had belonged to his great grandfather. And had been for ages lying forgotten in a corner, eaten with rust and covered with mildew. He scoured and polished it as best he could, but he perceived one great defect in it: that it had no closed helmet, nothing but a simple morion. With this deficiency, however, his ingenuity supplied, for he contrived a kind of half helmet of pasteboard which, fitted on to the morion, looked like a whole one. It is true that in order to see if it was strong and fit to stand a cut. He drew his sword and gave it a couple of slashes. The first of which undid in an instant what had taken him a week to do. 
The ease with which he had knocked it to pieces disconcerted him somewhat, and to guard against the danger, he set to work again, fixing bars of iron on the inside until he was satisfied with its strength. And then, not caring to try any more experience with it, he passed it and adopted it as a helmet of the most perfect construction. He next proceeded to inspect his hack, which, with more quarters than a real and more blemishes than the steed of Gonella, that was all skin and bones, surpassed in his eyes the Bucephalus of Alexander or the Babaker of the Cid. Four days were spent in thinking what name to give him. Because it was not right that a horse belonging to a knight so famous and one with such merits of his own should be without some distinctive name, and he strove to adapt it so as to indicate what he had been before belonging to a knight errant, and what he then was. For it was only reasonable that his master taking a new character, he should take a new name, and that it should be a distinguished and full-sounding one, befitting the new order and calling he was about to follow. And so, after having composed, struck out, rejected, added to, unmade, and remade a multitude of names out of his memory and fancy, he decided upon calling him Rocinante, a name to his thinking lofty, sonorous, and significant of his condition as a hack before he became what he now was—the first and foremost of all the hacks in the world. Having got a name for his horse so much to his taste, he was anxious to get one for himself. He was eight days more pondering over his point, till at last he made up his mind to call himself Don Quixote. Whence, as has been already said, the authors of this veracious history have inferred that his name must have been beyond a doubt Quesada, and not Quesada as others would have it. Recollecting, however, that the valiant Amadis was not content to call himself curtly Amadis and nothing more, but added the name of his kingdom and country to make it famous, and called himself Amadis of Gaul, he, like a good knight, resolved to add on the name of his and to style himself Don Quixote of La Mancha, whereby he considered he described accurately his origin and country, and did honour to it in taking his surname from it. So then, his armor being furbished, his morion turned into a helmet, his hack Christianed, and he himself confirmed, he came to the conclusion that nothing more was needed now but to look out for a lady to be in love with. For a knight errant without love was like a tree without leaves or fruit, or a body without a soul. As he said to himself, "If for my sins or by my good fortune I come across some giant hereabouts." A common occurrence with knights errant, and overthrow him in one onslaught, or cleave him asunder to the waist, or in short, vanquish and subdue him. Would it not be well to have someone I may send him to as a present, that he may come in and fall on his knees before my sweet lady, and in a humble, submissive voice say, "I am the giant Calaculiambro, lord of the island of Malindrania." Vanished in single combat, but the never sufficiently extolled knight Don Quixote of La Mancha, who has commanded me to present myself before your grace, that your highness dispose of me at your pleasure. Oh, how our good gentleman enjoyed the delivery of this speech, especially when he had thought of someone to call his lady. There was, so the story goes, in a village near, he owned a very good-looking farm girl with whom he had been at one time in love. Though, so far as is known, she never knew it nor gave a thought to the matter. Her name was Aldonza Lorenzo, and upon her he thought fit to confer the title of Lady of his Thoughts, 
and after some search for a name which should not be out of harmony with her own, and should suggest and indicate that of the princess and great lady, he decided upon calling her Dulcinea del Toboso. She being of El Toboso, a name to his mind musical, uncommon, and significant, like all those he had already bestowed upon himself and the things belonging to him. Oh. 咁啊，讀到呢一度先，第一章節淨係改名咧，改佢嘅只馬啦嚇，裝備好自己啦，幫自己改名啦，都已經搞咗佢好多日子啦。咁呢個主人翁佢其實想點咧？其實佢本身個名咧就唔係當契克地喎嚇，佢都係一個普通人嚟嘅啫，佢就係務農為生啦嚇，咁有一個一個都算係一個地主啦，咁有啲人。有啲人幫佢打下工咁啦，咁但係佢自己咧就終日沉迷嚇啲騎士嘅故事啦嚇，為咗去睇多啲咁嘅故事咧，就去不斷去買書啦嚇，連田都唔去耕啦。嗱，一日到黑就諗住呢啲嘢，而終於咧佢就決定咧要去嚇歷險啦。嚇歷險之前咧就係要改名啊，裝備好自己咁。呢個成個章節就係講呢個咁樣嘅一個起始點。一路聽落去咧，應該唔難發現咧，故事會有好多西班牙文啦，好多拉丁文啊，一啲金句啊，一啲難以翻譯嘅名詞啦，呢啲全部都係西班牙文或者拉丁文，咁就需要啲時間去適應嘅好，呢、這個章節同大家分享幾個字 ，finiquit，finiquit， 一個古老嘅字嚟嘅形容詞，意思係 excessively dainty or fastidious。過分嘅一絲不苟啦，過分嘅。lacrimose，lacrimose，l a c h r y m o s e，lacrimose， 形容詞，係 tearful or given to weeping， 容易喊嘅啊，悲哀嘅。whence，whence，w h e n z e 啊，呢啲古文啦，副詞嚟嘅，意思即係 from what place or source。啊，嚟自邊度？嚟自邊度 ？Whence？ 好，今日同大家分享到呢度。Hi, Yajit Zoi Tang Dai Gadup Nating Audios。